0: You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Friends, our our Bible reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 13. And here's the cue if if it's applicable to take your partner by the hand, give him a little squeeze if this is the reading that was at your wedding service. 1 Corinthians 13. If that was the one, then uh, just give him a little squeeze. Had it happened in the first service. I could see it. So here's Paul, and this is, I mean, this is regarded as a, a masterpiece in literary circles. He says, I may be able to speak the languages of human beings and, and, if, and even of angels, but if I have no love, my speech is no more than a noisy gong or a clanging bell. I may have the gift of inspired preaching, I may have all knowledge and understanding, uh, understanding all secrets, may have all the faith needed to move mountains, but if I have no love, I am nothing. I may give away everything I have and even give up my body to be burnt. But if I have no love, this does me no good. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. Love is not ill-mannered or selfish or irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love is not happy with evil, but is happy with the truth. Love never gives up. It's faith, hope and patience never fail. Love is eternal. There are inspired messages, but they are temporary. There are gifts of speaking in strange tongues, but they will cease. There is, no, there is knowledge, but it will pass. For our gifts of knowledge and of inspired messages are only partial. But when what is perfect comes, then what is partial will disappear. When I was a child, my speech, feelings and thinking were all those of a child. But now I am an adult. I have no more use for childish ways. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. Meanwhile, these three remain. Faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. Fantastic passage and it's the appropriate one for the climax of our current preaching series which is entitled, These Three Remain. And based on this last verse, these three remain, faith, hope and love. And we've been going through faith, we went through hope last week and today it's love. And really what Paul is saying here, friends, this is the spiritual quality that defines the essence of the Christian faith. This is baseline stuff. This is the most effective way to gauge a person's closeness to God. And to see if it really means anything to them. By this shall all people know, if you you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So we're going to look at this passage right now. Let me say this also, that during the ministry time, we're offering the ministry of anointing this morning. For those who are guests among us this morning, very simple. We anoint people with olive oil on their forehead. It's just a tangible sign of God's grace and forgiveness and healing power. And if you would like to participate in that ministry this morning, just indicate to the person who will be praying with you. And We had many in our first service. It's a very special moment when we can feel God's strength and power in it in a tangible way. That's during our ministry time. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Well, Father, as we come to open your word and listen to a message from your word, we pray that you'll help us to focus and concentrate. We've loved so far what we've seen in the service, the beautiful praise songs, the the opportunity to greet each other with warmth and with affection, the reading of your word, shortly communion. But now in this time of the preached word, may we have eyes open and ears and hearts ready to receive that which you want to reveal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. I have a colleague who tells a story out of his ministry, and I've heard it many times, but it always brings a smile to my face. Um, He tells of when he invited a guest preacher to his church, to preach about giving. They were working on a particular project. They wanted to raise the offering. It was one of those, you know, we've got to give more. you know. And uh, sometimes it's wise to bring in a guest for that sort of thing. And this guy was renowned as a good speaker, and he was really ploughing into this message. And partway through, as he talked about the church and as he talked about their vision and where they were heading and the need to raise funds, he actually got a little emotional. Started to get a little teary, got quite choked up as he went along. And my friend could see out of the corner of his eye, he said, Wow, this is really having an impact on my people. He was getting a bit teary himself. And so he said to the guy between the services, he said, You know, that was, wow, that was pretty moving. You obviously, you know, you're quite passionate about our cause here and you're, you're feeling it in your own heart. It's fantastic. And the guy said, I can do it next service if you like. (laughs) Like things aren't always as they appear to be He was a guy who wasn't moved by the cause So much as motivated more out of self-interest To look good in the eyes of my colleague As one who could work the crowds and get the response that was needed Things aren't always as they seem And friends, that's what Paul is driving at here in 1 Corinthians 13 He lists a whole bunch of gifts and spiritual manifestations, and of course the Corinthians were right into gifts. He lists all of these. He refers to eloquent speech, inspired preaching, the gift of knowledge and understanding. He talks about someone having boundless faith, able to achieve the miraculous, someone who exhibits unbelievable generosity, even somebody who's prepared to, to get in the pathway of martyrdom. He lists it all, and then he clearly indicates if the motivation is not right, If we're not motivated out of deep love for God and for our fellow beings, we drop way short of the mark when it comes to making a real difference in this world. To really, or rather from Paul's point of view, it's a way of asking. It's a way of asking this question. Why do we do the things we do? Now, He's not talking about our strange idiosyncrasies. You know, every family's got those where they sort of pass down from one generation to the other, those traits, those mannerisms. It's great when families get together and see all those similarities. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the positive things we do, the helpful things we do, the compassionate things we do, the caring things we do, the things we do when we're at our best. Why do we do them? That's Paul's question in 1 Corinthians 13. Is it out of fear? Over the centuries, even now, in some settings, a lot of religious activity is motivated by fear. People are afraid of God and what He might do to them. Some people are really scared at that point, and churches and various faiths around the world, including some branches of the christian church let 's be honest, over the centuries, have used fear to exploit money. And services and volunteerism out of unsuspecting, malleable devotees. On the other hand, some people are motivated in their service and their sacrifice out of guilt. Like fear, that can be a powerful motivator, not necessarily a healthy one, by the way. But you know, we see what others are doing and we feel guilty that we should do something as well. We see the extent to which we've been blessed. And, and we're touched at that level that we need to, we need to give something back. You, you know how that works. And then again, sometimes we do what we do for a reward. I mean, people discover at a very early age there can be tangible rewards in being a nice person. There are tangible rewards in being someone who does good, who, who's a generous person. You can earn people's favour. You can earn their friendship. You can earn their influence. You can be seen to be someone of generosity and devotion. And people will respond to that. Of course, during his ministry, Jesus had some real run-ins with people, religious leaders, hypocritical religious leaders, who liked to pray in public, only in public, when everybody was watching. And they waited for the critical moment till everybody was watching before they dropped their offering in the box. Or probably more... This kind of offering, you know, here we go. Wow, oh, look at that! And they were just playing on the moment. And Jesus had a lot of critical things to say about such hypocrisy. Main thing is, he said, "You've already got your reward." Like that's it. <laughs> yeah, you know, the applause of the crowd. That's it. That doesn't go any further than that. He also, in a, a harsher moment, described them or compared them to tombs in a cemetery. All beautiful, glistening in the sun, ornate on the outside. But inside, full of decaying bones and human flesh, not a very pretty picture, a very evocative, very evocative imagery. And so back to 1 Corinthians and Paul is saying, look, you can be doing all manner of wonderful deeds. You can have an array of spiritual gifts. You can appear to be a truly remarkable person and all this is fine But if it's not motivated by a deep and abiding love, a Christ-like love for people, we're not going to make any lasting impact. We're like a clanging bell, he says in verse 1. It does us no good, he says in verse 2. We are nothing, in verse verse 2 he says that. I mean, that's pretty harsh. And it's a most unlikely passage from somebody like Paul, by the way. I mean, we expect passages on love from John. I mean, John is the beloved disciple. He was there when Jesus said most of the things he said about love. So we expect teaching from John, and we get plenty of it, about love. But, but you know, Paul, I mean, he's more of a theologian. I mean, he's more a cerebral kind of guy. He's the analytical academic. But here in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he interrupts his great theological discourse on worship and the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts is all there. He interrupts it, just stops it cold. He leaves all those weighty topics that he's been focusing on in the previous chapters. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he writes a passage which is a literary masterpiece. Even non-biblical, non-Christian scholars will acknowledge that. It is just so beautiful. Why does he do it? Why does he do it? Interrupt this theological, and go, let's focus on love. I'll tell you why he does it. Because he wanted the Corinthians, and us, to know a couple of things. He wanted them to know, you can have your theology right. You can have your doctrine line ball. You can have your worship service as slick as ever. And you can have your, your, your run sheet tight. But if... If that church does not exhibit Christ-like love, and if that love doesn't have its expression in unity, in tolerance, in understanding, in compassion, in justice, then that church and its individual members are dropping way short of their God-given potential. He's saying they're like in the midst of all the noise of society, people clamouring and all the, the din of, Uncertainty and everything that happens, they're like a little tiny bell, just ringing faintly, <laughs> audible only to those in the immediate vicinity, like the little bell we ring before the services here, <laughs> which we hope one day to fix with uh, a, a, an audio system. But at the moment, it's like a little bell. And Paul's saying that's, that's the impact, you know, in the midst of all. Well, I mean, what does a little bell do up in the middle of Willoughby Road or on Pitt Street Mall? Very little. Now that raises, so, so really like that church, is, is, it, it might appear to be successful and effective, but no matter how big it is, no matter how impressive it is, if it's not motivated by love, it's just not cutting up. And it raises an interesting question. And I've been thinking about this during the week. Look at this. How do you measure the success and the effectiveness of a church? Is it on the basis of size? Is it on the basis of buildings or any of the things I've just mentioned? Of course not. Paul would say an effective and successful church is one where the essential DNA, the essential nature of the fellowship is love, not just any kind of love. And he goes to great lengths to describe it, not just any kind of love. Look what he says, love which is patient, kind, not jealous. Not proud, not conceited. A love which does not keep a record of wrongs. A love that is not happy with evil but is happy with the truth. A love that never gives up. A love characterized by hope, faith and patience. It's all there in verses 4 to 7. Very, very detailed description of love. Gee, speaking of measuring a church's effectiveness, um, an article came across my desk this week via Facebook. So it must be true. And uh, actually, it is true. It was sent to me straight out of the, uh, one of the Melbourne papers, sent to me by a ministry colleague in the Uniting Church in Melbourne. And it seems like the Uniting Church in Melbourne. This is this is it's sad as 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 much as as it is interesting. The Uniting Church in Melbourne has suffered a huge financial loss and indebtedness because of the closure of a large school in Melbourne last year. It was was highly publicised on some of the TV shows. And that racked up debts of $36 million for which the United Church is responsible. And so at their May Synod, they made a decision that they would sell 14 churches, throughout Victoria and Tasmania and that they would also sell land like unused manses and like unused tennis courts or used tennis, I don't know, but the land and all sorts of other sort of things that can be sold affecting 56 churches of the 600 plus that they have in Victoria and Tasmania. And in a statement, the State Secretary of the United Church, Dr. Mark Lawrence, said this. He said that all UCA properties have been evaluated on the basis of, get this, their contribution to mission. Somebody comes in and says, okay, what's happening here in terms of mission? We're going to just check on this before we sell you up, possibly. Very confronting. The likely impact, here's the second criteria, the likely impact on mission, presumably the local area, if the church was sold, which is a sort of a nice way of saying, if we sell you up, will anybody notice? Wow. And the last, well, one of the last main criterions, the potential price. Bang for buck. How much can we get for this church? And I read that article, and gosh, on Facebook, I was mean, just like lighting up, you know, I mean, lots of pain and lots, you know, lots of disenfranchised ministers and people who are just very upset about this. Uh, look, it's a tough call, isn't it? A lot of heartache, a lot of disappointment. Look, let's be honest. It would be interesting to see what would happen in our movement if a similar performance review was undertaken, or any mainline denomination. It would be very interesting. Uh, Doubtless some of the churches that have been designated to close, look, doubtless some of them are very justified. You'd have to say that. If there's a loss of vision, if there's a long-term history of inertia and inactivity and resistance to change, then it's time to say, you know what folks, we need that building, we need the money to help plant churches out in the out in the expanding edges of the suburbs. We've done that in our own movement a little bit. But you know, it's an exercise like this, though, that at least on the surface, is it has the potential to be very subjective. Would you agree? Very subjective. With people differing sharply on the criteria that should be used for this, like I say, performance evaluation. Scary. That's happening in, in Melbourne today. Well, perhaps Paul's contribution to this discussion would be to reiterate the words of verse 12 in his famous love chapter of all the of all the verses this is the one that's considered the least we just usually skip over this one but it's very important in this context he says this verse 12 of first corinthians 13 what we see now is like a dim image in a mirror now the corinthians knew about mirrors because the historians and the uh, archaeologists tell us that corinth was known as a place where they produced ancient mirrors they made them out of highly polished metal so even the best mirrors had an element of distortion because pre-glass you just couldn't get that clarity that you can get now in a mirror. So they would understand understood what Paul was saying. What we see now is like a dim image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. What I know now is only partial. Then it will be complete, as complete as God's knowledge of me. In other words, we may think we know certain things about life and love and relationships, We may think we know certain things about missional effectiveness. What does work and what doesn't work. But there's an eternal perspective which only God sees and one day we will see it. And of course that's his lead-in to the final verse of the chapter. Meanwhile, these three remain. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest is love. Many years ago, thanks to Robert Schuller, and I've used this quote many times, um, I was introduced to a, a definition of agape love, Christ-like love, which I've used before. And, and I think it's very, very helpful because I like it because it distinguishes between the way we use love in the popular sense, which is often very needs-based. Oh, I love that, or I love you because I need you. Or it's very attractional. You know, we only love things that we like the look of. This, is, this permeates our society. Whereas this particular definition... Puts the Christ-like love that we're looking at this morning in sharp contrast to that popular notion of love. And this is what Schiller said all those years ago: "I love you, not because I like you. I love you not because I need you. I love you because you need me." You see how that just that, that turns the whole thing around. Now, there's a quality. There's, there's a you want to distinguish Christ-like love from the Popular usage of love, there's a the distinction right there. You won't read that in Cleo. Um, often, if at all. <laughs> and I don't speak from personal experience, I'm just I'm surmising that. <laughs> um, so friends, look, look here's, here's the thing. How do we get this type of selfless love? H- how do we get this kind of... H- is it possible to live our lives with others in mind consistently? We'll never do it 100%. None of us are that good. But is it possible to reach a point where you're putting others out of Christ-like love first consistently? I only know one answer to that question. One answer only. It happens when we respond to the love that God has shown to us. That's when it begins to happen. This is what John is talking about. This beloved disciple talks so much about love. This is what what he's getting at in the... In the 11th verse of the fourth chapter of his first letter, he says this, Dear friends, if this is how God loved us, then how should we love one another? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in union with us and his love is made perfect in us. Now, you can unpack that over weeks and weeks and weeks. It would take somebody a lot smarter than me to plumb the depths of that Of that verse it means that when you give love if it's born out of Christ likeness or Christ devotion to Christ you're giving God's love when you receive love from a brother or a sister and it's motivated by Christ that's how God loves you that's don't look for anything beyond that that's how God loves you it's manifest in the way we interact and the way we relate to people you see friends as human beings we're at the top of the creation order We are unique in our capacity to love and to give ourselves in love to one another and and, and to make huge sacrifices and to go to extraordinary lengths to show love for others. We see it all the time among people, even beyond the faith dimension. I mean, this is just who we are as people. Um, I, I, um, I record Sunday night on Channel 7 made a faux pas in the first service, said it was 60 minutes. Sunday night, I record it. Some of you watch it live. Um, I'm here at church, uh, but that's okay. I'm being paid to be here. Um, so <laughs> I'd be here anyway. Um, Sunday night, you know, I saw this program, fantastic, about a guy who went to a hospital. Do you see this? Ordinary guy, husband, father, went to hospital for a fairly minor operation, came out totally without arms. Totally without legs. Like it's just, it was heart wrenching. And just to see that the way in which this man has been given life and hope purely through the love of a, a devoted wife, and uh, it was either two or three little kids, it just doted on their dad. It was just like one of those stories. We, we need those sort of stories a lot just to kind of restore our faith in humanity and to keep us soft on the inside. I need those sort of stories a lot. That's why, one of the reasons I record those shows. It's a fantastic story. There was no direct mention of God or faith. I don't know where they stand in relation to that. It just highlighted to me that like, that's our natural capacity. We have this incredible capacity as human beings, and it can be taken back to the story of creation. That's how we're made. The Bible says God created humankind in his own image. Nothing to do with physical appearance. Even though you're working out and you think you've got a godlike body, I'm sorry, it's not about that. It's nothing to do with physical appearance. It's all to do with our emotional and spiritual capacity. That's what it's to do with. Created in the image of God with a capacity to love and to feel. And here's where conversion comes in. When we surrender our hearts and wills to Jesus Christ, our capacity to love is heightened. It's expanded. It's intensified. That's conversion. When we make the discovery, no matter how small the discovery, Sam said some of these young ones are just sort of still getting their heads around things like the Bible and theology. That'll all come. But these kids have got one thing already. They understand that God loves them and that he wants to have a relationship with them and that he's demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Those kids get that. They get that. And that's all you need. That's all you need to start on the Christian pathway. And it's all motivated because of what he has done for us. It's relatively easy to say God loves us. God loves you. If you're an hour power fan, you know the, the old saying, of, God loves you and so do I. Uh, which is great, stood the test of time. But it's easier to say it. But there's a, a, there's a writer called Max Licardo, who I think has really captured what it means to say God loves us. He's captured it in a very contemporary and very colloquial way. And, and I love it so much, I've got it on the screen for you. Look at this, it's from one of his books. He says, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers on special occasions and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe. He's chosen your heart. Face it. He's crazy about you. I mean, that's, that sums it up for me. We love because he first loved us. Now, friends, Northside loves because he first loved us. And love as a spiritual value has always been and always will be central to the dna of this church while ever there are people even if it's only a handful of people who are loving each other out of the love that god has shown to them in other words reflecting the love they have already received will always be that kind of church whatever there's some people a remnant a faithful remnant who are trying to do that in God's strength in the power of the Holy Spirit and so the message is simple from 1 Corinthians 13 today this week show the grace that has been shown to you show the forgiveness that's been shown to you show the compassion that's been shown to you through him show the justice that's been shown to you through him after all He's crazy about you. Let's face it. Let's bear in prayer, shall we?